to work hard, spread lace to you, I'll tell of how the good old union is coming here to dwell. Tell me which side are you on? Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Comrades and friends, uh, good evening. I'm, I'm Christine Blower and I'd like to welcome you uh, to this, our last socialist policy seminar of, of this year, entitled Winning the Right to Food, the fight to make sure that no one goes hungry. This is part of a series of events uh, that we in the Socialist Campaign Group have been organising with the Labour uh, Assembly Against Austerity and with Momentum to look at the socialist solutions that we need to this deep crisis. It's, when we send out the videos um, and we will be announcing some more in the new year. But in the meantime, you can catch up with them on social media. And of course, you can over Christmas when you will have loads of time, listen to this particular one on a podcast. So tonight we're addressing one of the deepest crises in our country, widespread hunger in the sixth largest economy on Earth. Not a single person, adult or child, should be going hungry. Not a single person should need to be fed by charity, however well-intentioned. But sadly, millions of people are going hungry. Over 11 million people are now in food security. And our country has more food banks than branches of McDonald's. We know that this is a result of political choices. And there's a growing movement against this, led by some of the people that you're going to hear from this evening. A movement demanding that food is treated like education and health care as a basic human right. And with practical policies such as free school meals for all uh, and much more to deliver that right, these are the things we're gonna hear about this evening. So, uh, and at the end, we'll have some, uh, some opportunity for Q and A. Uh, we've got a number of speakers and I'm gonna introduce them as, uh, as they come up to speak. So our first speaker is Ian Byrne MP and he was actually the first person I heard talking about we need a campaign on the right to food. He's a leading national grassroots campaigner and he's taken the right to food, not just into parliament, but into the labor movement and out and about in his constituency and onto council estates and frankly, to anyone who needs to hear this message. He is a, he's a stalwart of this campaign. He, he was leading it, now he's working to make sure we follow through on it. Uh, Ian, the floor is yours. Uh, thanks, Chris, for them kind words, and always lovely to uh, to be on a Zoom uh, with you. Uh, greetings of solidarity, and thanks for those who made tonight's event on winning the right to food possible, and to everyone for attending the event, and thank you to all the other speakers and for the excellent work you're all doing. I'm a member of Parliament for Liverpool West Derby. I was elected in 2019. I'm also an extremely proud member of the Soldiers Campaign Group. So working with fan support and food banks, in 2015, we started a grassroots campaign that's grown nationally. And in 2019, they had the opportunity to bring that right to food campaign to Parliament. And I think we need to put it into context of where we are now. We have the biggest economic and social crisis in living memory. The rise of 16.4% in the price of food in the last year is the highest since 1977, alongside the sharpest fall in real wages since 1977. It's an absolute catastrophe. So many in our communities have nothing left to cushion this economic tsunami and getting inundated by texts, requests from people with nothing, absolutely nothing in their cupboards. Now, 
at this very moment. It's heartbreaking and terrifying how what's be broken the system is for millions and millions of people across our country. 40 years of Thatcherite-inspired economic consensus and the privatisation of essential utilities coupled with 12 years of brutal austerity, the government robbing communities of essential services has left cities like Liverpool and many others across the UK absolutely defenceless in protection of its residents. It's a terrifying time and people are desperate for solutions that they are not seeing from Westminster. One in three in my great city of Liverpool are in food poverty at this very moment. One in six in my constituency of West Derby are missing meals and going without food. And two in three of my constituents are cutting back on hot water, heating all electricity. The situation really is getting worse by the hour, yet the government is nowhere to be seen. The fear currently being felt across this nation is palpable. Every night, millions are worried if they'll freeze or starve in their own homes. We have workers in almost every industry taking strike action as a last resort because work doesn't pay, regardless what Theresa Koff said to me uh, two weeks ago on the effort of select committee, and it doesn't meet rising costs like food. In West Derby, there are nurses, educators, firefighters, postal workers, rail staff and civil servants all using food banks regularly. What have we become? This is one of the most grave and frightening crises seen in our lifetimes, yet my constituents tell me they feel abandoned and ignored by the government whose job surely it is to protect them. Food insecurity levels have doubled since the start of 2022, which is terrifying when you consider that we started this campaign in 2015, affecting an estimated 10 million adults and 4 million children in September alone. If a government cannot ensure everyone has a, a, enough to eat and guarantee their right to food, then it is the government that is fundamentally broken. Food poverty leads to health and life expectancy inequality, malnutrition. Poverty destroys the life chances of future generations in our poorest communities. It affects children's education attainment and life chances. Less measurable, but no less important, is the effect on individual human dignity and social cohesion over time in our polarised nation of food banks next to investment banks. How can we accept that we have more food banks than McDonald's? When do we collectively accept that the system is fundamentally broken and the government is failing, the people is elected to serve? It is a disgrace that my constituents face this appalling, a grave situation, yet at the same time, we read reports that global food companies have paid out 15 billion in profits to their shareholders, and we know supermarkets aren't doing too badly either. When we see images of baby food being kept padlocked and put on the top shelves of supermarkets to keep it out of the way of desperate people, then we really do know the system is broken. And that image, I think, encapsulates where we are now as a country, and why we need change so desperately. At a recent committee, a set on, on in Parliament, we heard evidence from the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Food, who told us that corporations have a significant amount of power in markets, and there is not much being done to hold them accountable. Food prices are at the mercy of speculation, but governments do have the tools in place to stabilise prices. Let's not be in any doubt Hunger is a political choice, and it's a choice made by those in power in governments at this very moment. Political choices are destroying our local and national economy by driving millions into abject poverty. Political choices are resulting in millions of our children starving. The time for stick and plasters is over. 
such as the reliance on thousands of food bank and pantry volunteers and donors, it's over. We need systemic change so that our people might live with the opportunity of health, happiness and dignity, regardless of their economic situation as it stands now. Enough really is enough. This is why we started the campaign to fight to food, both as a grassroots national movement and in Parliament to make access to food illegal life for all. I've worked with an incredible range of local and national organisations, trade unions, community campaigners. Our objective is to have the right to food enshrined in law and to end the scandal and hunger and food banks once and for all. We demand enforceable rights to ensure that the government of the day is accountable for addressing the cost of food, making sure nobody goes hungry. And so it is prevented from making decisions that lead people to be unable to afford to put a meal on the table, which unfortunately we just have not got that safeguard now in legislation. The campaigns uh, that we've tried to run regarding the right to food is a grassroots organic campaign, providing people with materials, empowering them to run their own campaigns locally within their own communities. Not a top-down approach, never works, never has, and it needs to be built from the grassroots up. We've got collaborations with trade unions, football clubs, community groups, health workers, faith leaders, metro mayors, to build campaigns and build pressure to collective solidarity and collective experience of food poverty and listening to people on the ground. How they thought a right to food should be shaped was fundamentally key in coming up with the submission what we uh, submitted to the National Food Strategy. I think if we touch on what the campaign's achieved so far since 2019, we've had motions passed unanimously at Labour Party conference, supporting the right to food, motion passed unanimously at the trade union conference or affiliated unions, supporting the right to food. We've got right to food cities and towns, and I'll read them out because the list is, 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 quite, uh, is quite impressive. We've got Liverpool, Manchester, Greater Manchester combined authority, Liverpool City region, Rotherham, Brighton, Haringey, St. Helens, Preston, Lancaster, Durham, Newcastle, Portsmouth, Totes, Coventry, Sheffield, Birmingham, Portsmouth, Southampton in the last four weeks and the Islington Council as well. I'm in talks with Carlisle Council at the moment as well. So it's building a movement which people can see that is desperately needed politically right across all uh, colours as well because some of them councils I mentioned there are actually Conservative and Lib Dems. So we've had local and regional campaigns fighting for the right to food. I'm sure there's some fantastic people from the uh, Right to Food London campaign who've been right at the forefront of this, absolutely taking the campaign and making it, uh, their own. Community groups, football uh, groups, which are really important because obviously the amount of people that we can influence and get a right to food out using every, sort, every uh, opportunity we can. And... With the football elements of it, we've had supporters putting aside sectarian differences and it's focusing people's minds on know who your real enemy is. It's not somebody who speaks with a Cockney accent, a Geordie accent, a Scouts accent, a Manc accent. It's the people that are putting 14 million people into hunger and continuing to drive and drive our class back. So, no, so far, we've tried to pull groups together and you know we've got Liverpool and Everton working together, United, City... Sunderland, Newcastle, Villa, Birmingham, Dundee, Dundee United, West Ham, Millwall, and amazingly Rangers and Celtic as well have come together and pull aside tribal differences to work on aiding the battle against food poverty in their own communities, but also, usually importantly, pushing the right to food in their communities as well. 
and we've now gone into Belfast. Here working with clubs who are putting side sectarian differences again, pushing for the right to food. And amazingly, we've got a right to food banners being fallen in the ground now, and I've seen that in West Ham, which I was extremely proud of. As I said, we've got trade union backings. We put a right to food submission into the national food strategy, and also. We've had fantastic support from the trade union movement. And I must say the bakers uh, have been fantastic and Michael Calderbank and the likes of Tommy Kane pulling together a collective of academics, people on the ground who are now formulating research papers. So we've got a grassroots element of it. We've got a political element of it. We've got an academic element of it, which I'm extremely proud of how that's, how that's flown. The five basic demands that we put forward are right to food, the universal free school meals, no child should go hungry and invite a food campaign that's consistently called for uh, free school meals. And I'll touch on that a bit later. Then I know Kim will be touching on that as well from the uh, uh, NEU campaign. The government to state how much of minimum wages and benefits on which people are expected to live is for food. The right to, camp- uh, right to food campaign wants to ensure that any government of the day must come to Parliament to reveal how much money is factored in for food when set a minimum and level uh, minimum uh, benefits and living wages. We now know it's absolutely nowhere near what's required, but they haven't got a legal duty to come before Parliament and tell us what they deem it to be fit to be, so we can actually fight for the figure. Independence enforcement of legislation, right to food must, legislation must be accompanied by oversight and enforcement powers granted to a new regulatory body that will hold the government to account, key. Community kitchens, something which I absolutely adore. The Right to Food campaign believes community kitchens provide a workable solution to food poverty. Government should fund dining clubs, meal-on-wheels services, which have been stripped my communities for the elderly and the vulnerable. School holiday meals to those in need and coochie clubs for the wider community. We actually took this from a concept and piloted it in Liverpool in October in the wonderful St. Cecilia School of my constituency. Working with the marvellous Professor Bryce Evans, who's done a fantastic book on community kitchens after the war, we tried to come up with a template which could then be utilised by certainly Liverpool Council and other councils across the land as something which could be utilised uh, during these difficult times. So we took the school canteen because there's not many resources left in Liverpool now. They've all been stripped away from us, but we've still got schools. The school canteen was turned into a restaurant for the week. We had families booking tables to the uh, pupils, uh, children booking tables for the families, extended families, sitting down together, breaking bread together. Uh, it was wonderful, in a wonderfully warm environment, to be given healthy, nutritious food. And it's a real template, something extremely proud of. We call it Scouse Kitchen. That can be called anything you want it to be called, Geordie Kitchen, Man Kitchen. We just wanted to create that template, which can be utilised as taking out a concept in the right to food and putting it into work and practice. New success, something that hopefully we can continue uh, to do moving forward. Also ensuring food security is one of the key elements of uh, right to food, uh, what we've submitted, which is about taking into account competition, planning, transport, local governments and policies when formulating from a council perspective and a local government perspective, because we need to eradicate food deserts and not empower them. I just want to touch on uh, the universal free school meals and the, the elements of what we've had over the last eight weeks uh, in EFRA select committees. So we've had the Food Foundations attend the EFRA select committee and say food insecurity is more common among households with children. Child poverty has not improved for decades, as one in three 
children living below the poverty line. And I think in recognition of what the campaign, we've worked with the fantastic uh, Ian Sinner from Alder Hay, who's at the forefront of fighting uh, the effects of poverty from a uh, medical uh, perspective. He got 1,250 healthcare professionals to sign a statement backing uh, a right to food and calling on universal free school meals. And I think when we've uh, submitted the uh, right to food submission to the National Food Strategy, you know, within it, we wrote that every child with compulsory education, as soon as they enter compulsory education, so they leave compulsory education, must be provided with a nutritious free school breakfast and lunch. It gives everybody the opportunity. I'm sure if you go to Eaton, that you get a breakfast and you get a free sc- and you get a school meal, and I'm sure you get a tea and another three or four uh, breaks in between. So they certainly wouldn't be falling asleep to death, going hungry and eating. But they are in our schools. So what, when we took this camp, when we took the right to food campaign, and I spoke to the Conservative MPs across the board because they have done and ministers, I said, you know, we cannot afford to do this. They say, how can we not afford to? But it's an investment. It's key. This is an investment in our children's futures, and that's how it should be framed. It's also a huge opportunity for an investment in your local community to community wealth building. You know, we could formulate universal free school meals to be an absolutely massive part of the economic offering that a community can make as well. And from the effort select committees, we had Henry Dimbleby, who was in charge of the National Food Strategy. Unfortunately, that was kicked into the long grass. Now a massive support of universal free school meals. And the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the right to food, who we got to the Effort Select Committee uh, four weeks ago now, I think, he's a massive fan of universal free school meals as a key element in fighting food poverty. So I think to have people like that now actually backing it, along with everybody else, is absolutely key. Except that a parent has to have as a compulsory requirement that all children have to go to school within that should be levelled against the state to ensure that every child actually has that opportunity there to be fed and watered during the day as well. It's absolutely fundamentally key. It's a fundamental part of the Right to Food uh, campaign. I think next steps, uh, certainly from our perspective, is you know get the Right to Food, uh, right to food campaign toolkit, take it into your community, start a campaign uh, in your area. You can go onto your website to download Download the uh, campaign toolkit, work with trade unions, work with your local right to food campaigns if you've got one up and running already. We've also got the Enough is Enough campaign, which has got uh, the right to food in stand in one of its five asks. We've got Unite in the Workers community that have signed up to right to food. And I think that's what we need to do is build this collective voice, which becomes so loud, no politician of any party can ignore it anymore. And that's what the right to food campaign should be. And they come once... We'd be looking to build hunger marches in every town and city, declaring themselves supporters of a right to food and demanding a right to food. And I think people in our communities are starving. And we need political leadership that guarantees and realises everybody's right to food. Beverage will be spinning in his grave now at the lack of political will and leadership on this issue at the moment in Parliament. We must remember the reliance on charity alone was considered sufficient guarantee for basic human needs in the UK. Previous generations would not have legislated for universal state schooling and the National Health Service. The current horrific situation, which I've just outlined, 
demonstrates that we need the same vision and ambition when it comes to food security. And I cannot wait a moment longer. Thank you all for listening. Solidarity. And let's get a right to food. That's brilliant. Thank you so much, uh, Ian. I'm just going to say to everybody listening and watching that if you have any questions, can you can you put them in the chat, please? So we'll take those uh, at the end. That was a fantastic presentation, Ian, and I'm sure it'll be followed by a, uh, an equally forceful one from our next speaker, Kim Johnson MP, who is specifically campaigning on universal free school meals. And I know she's doing tremendous work with the National Education Union. Kim, the floor is yours. Thank you so much, Christine, and it's a real pleasure to be on this call tonight. Um, my name is Kim Johnson. I'm the Labour MP for Liverpool Riverside, and I often refer to us as the Socialist Republic of Liverpool. And, and I, like Ian, was elected in 2019, and I have been a member of the SEG since I was elected three years ago. But, you know, it, um, it's really great to be on this rally tonight because I think it's really timely and really important. But I'm not the only one who's pushing for universal free school meals. You know, Ian's just spoken about it. Charitable organisations, cross-party politicians are also making the same demand. And it is important that we build a mass movement around food insecurity, child poverty and free school meals. Because at this point, even our front bench aren't on board, let alone the government. You know, I grew up in the 1970s. I was a teenager in the 1970s when we had very high unemployment, when Maggie Thatcher, the milk snatcher, um, started her neoliberal policies and wanted a managed decline of our great city of Liverpool. But from my point of view, it's never been as bad as it is now. You know, we never had kids going hungry or public sector workers reliant on food banks. You know, I was at a PCS rally um, picket line this morning um, outside a job centre in my constituency. And I was told by members of staff that they have food banks for their staff. These are civil servants, low paid civil servants in the fifth richest economy in the world. You know, and what we've seen over um, the last couple of years during the pandemic was an exponential rise in the number of billionaires. You know, but while we had more workers, more reliant on food banks, but comrades, you know, we should be having um, an election in the next two years, if not sooner. And we need to be pushing for universal free school meals to include it in our manifesto and making the arguments that these policies are common sense, that our countries are far, other countries are far ahead than us. And that if, you know, that this government and the Labour Party are serious about levelling up and reversing the inequalities that have exploded in the last 12 years, then the roots of the, the um, Thatcherite neoliberal policies of the 1980s need to be overturned. And we know in this country, our economy has stagnated. You know, we've got a low growth economy and we've had it for the past 12 years. And we know that everything has gone up except incomes, you know, and according to the ABR and even the Chancellor, we're now in a recession. And instead of real living wage and social security that supports people out of poverty, we're in 
a crisis. You know, we're on a cliff edge at this moment, you know, of insecure work and poverty pay and a welfare system that drives people into destitution. You know, we hear time and time again from this government that work is the route out of poverty. And we know that just total nonsense. You know, I make no bones about it. We are facing a massive humanitarian crisis, a poverty crisis, you know, and we have seen, you know, skyrocketing rents and energy bills um, eaten into people's pay packets. You know, people, you know, have limited disposable income at the moment and they are far more squeezed. And the record rises in food prices is pushing millions uh, of people into food insecurity. And this is going to have a massive impact also on our schools who only receive £2.47 to um, provide meals for children in schools. And that's only risen um, in the last 12 years by seven pence. You know, it's immoral. You know, we are the fifth richest economy in the world. And yet we have four million children currently living in poverty in the UK. You know, the the average is that eight children in a class of 30 are living in poverty. But in Liverpool, we have 11 out of 30. You know, this number includes children who are um, from families who are in work. You know, so work is not the route out of poverty. You know, there's been lots of analysis over the years and the impact analysis of last year's holiday activities and food programmes show that only uh, reached 29% of all children eligible for free school meals because sadly, the threshold for children accessing free school meals is 7,400 and we know that um, parents who are in precarious um, work on zero hour contracts are having to access universal credit and access um, food banks. But inflation and the number of families living in food insecurity is skyrocketing, you know, and the pressure is likely to see the situation worsen, particularly in the coming months. And yeah, um, at the autumn statement, the Chancellor did agree to increase pensions and benefits in line with inflation by 10%. But children and people are going hungry now and we need decisive action now. So the rising number of children eligible for equal meals, even under the currently restrictive criteria, coupled with the swinging cuts being forced on local authority, is creating a perfect storm. Because if children don't access free school meals, then they can't access half funding during the school holiday periods. And I've just mentioned, you know, it doesn't reach, you know, the numbers of children that it should do. And, you know, and sadly, you know, um, I hear stories um, about um, um, the impact of the reduction of half funding is having on local authorities. You know, Liverpool City Council are having to find £73 million in cuts. This is going to rise to 112 in the next couple of years. And it will be the likes of half funding, you know, and the various programmes that we have to support those most vulnerable in our local areas um, over the next coming years. You know, teachers across this country are reporting 
that children mimic eating from empty lunch boxes or they eaten rubbers, you know, and even those um, children who can access meals, unfortunately, um, are going hungry because their um, parents are unable to um, put the money on their, their food cards. And, and sadly, these children are going hungry on a daily basis. So a report by the Childhood Trust has predicted that nearly one third of all children will go hungry this winter in the fifth richest country in the world. You know, it is immoral and it should not be happening, you know, and this is a single biggest channel challenge that schools are facing you know but we know that schools are going to face other challenges you know schools in liverpool for example you know having to find extra funding to heat their schools you know they're having to find extra funding to um, pay for agency staff and so the funding that they have is being whittled away and this is having an impact on the kind of services that they can provide to the children and the wider community. So a recent report from the School Food Foundation revealed that around 2.6 million children live in households that missed meals or struggled to access healthy food and levels of insecurity that Ian has already touched on um, has risen by over 40% since the start of this year alone. And that statistic was published before the summer and will only have risen, you know, because of um, this perfect storm that we're seeing at the moment in terms of rise in energy costs, the rise in inflation, the rise in interest rates and the rise in food. Nearly 70% of food bank providers now say they may need to turn people away or reduce the size of emergency rations due to completely unsustainable surge in demand that will prevent them from feeding the hungriest families in the coming months. And I know that um, food banks and food pantries in my Liverpool Riverside constituency are already struggling. Now, some of them are unable to um, open as often as they used to because of the increase in energy costs to keep um, the fridges and the freezers going. And again, this is going to have a major impact on those most in need in the most um, disadvantaged communities. But comrades, we know the benefits that a hot, nutritious meal gives to children. Yet the cost of living crisis is driving up the pressure for urgent action Universal free school meals mean so much more. It's providing the health and life chances of future wealth builders. Because you know, we know that because of um, the crisis that children are suffering at the moment, we're seeing the rising Victorian diseases, you know, scurvy, rickets, scarlet fever. You know, more children are suffering malnutrition and obesity because they're eating the wrong food. So universal free school meals is about improving the health and the life chances of our wealth builders. From improvements to diets that would teach young people from an early age about healthy eating and help to alleviate pressure on our NHS and bring down the life expectancy gap between rich and poor and reverse the rising trend in obesity that currently sees one in three children leave school overweight or obese. And we know that if a child um, has an empty belly, they can't learn. So providing a hot, 
nutritious meal means that their educational attainment improves. And there is so much to say about the benefits of universality. You know, um, I held an event at the beginning of September in Parliament. We had a number of young um, people who are ambassadors and they talked about how they felt as um, recipients of free school meals, having to stand in separate lines. They said that they felt like they had a big banner on their back that says they were poor. So providing universality takes away that stigma and it improves the uptake and making sure that no child goes hungry or suffers setbacks at school because of their background. And there is a lot of um, data and research that shows that universality provides benefit that leaps and bounds beyond any means tested programs, both in terms of health and education. You know, and talking to those teachers and local authorities who do roll out universal free school meals, what they will say, that the bureaucracy involved in determining who is and who isn't takes up so much more time as well. So universality takes away the whole bureaucracy. Comrades, it's going to be a difficult road ahead. But, you know, we know that other organisations and local authorities have done it. Southwark, Islington, Westminster are just like some examples of those local authorities in London who have rolled out universal free school meals. It's been done in Wales and Scotland. So that says to me that it's been done there, then it can be done here. Poverty and child hunger um, is a political choice, as Ian has already said, you know, um, and Ian's mentioned Henry Dimbleby and the food strategy that was commissioned by this government, you know, and a key recommendation of that food strategy was the rollout of universal free school meals for all of those on universal credit. But as I mentioned, the threshold at the moment is 7,400 and far too low. And we know that there are 800,000 children who should be eligible but are not getting it. And from my point of view, the Labour Party should be leading this fight against this. But unfortunately, our front bench are not on board yet. You know, they think that the rollout of um, breakfast clubs is the way to go. But uh, I'm having meetings with and have had meetings with Brid Bridget Philipson, who is our shadow education um, secretary. And we need to be applying um, pressure um, on our front bench because each and every one of us on this call today needs to join the fight to make sure that our leadership and the MPs elected to represent it take up the fight to make sure that no child goes hungry and no child is left behind. And the impact of not doing so um, will be, you know, a um, burden on our NHS in the future. As I said, you know, we're seeing some of those Victorian diseases, obesity and um, diabetes is on the rise for a lot of our children. So what can you do? You know, you can support our Sultana's 10 minute rule bill that's coming back to Parliament in January, but also to support the NUU no child left behind campaign but it's also about contacting your local mp you know and telling them that they need to get behind this campaign because comrades together 
we can all make a significant change. So solidarity and support to everybody on this call and let's make change happen and let's make sure that no child goes hungry. Thank you, comrades. Thanks, thanks very much, Kim. I think the important, one of the important points though is the fact that it is actually a political choice. I go back to the fact that when I talk to Finnish teachers, contemporary Finnish teachers, they say when Finland came out of the Second World War, its economy was at breaking point. And yet one of the decisions that it made was that Finland would, would feed all of its children every day. And, you know, we know, those of us who are interested in education, that the Finnish school system, education system and general social system has been so much more impressive, uh, really, than ours. Anyway, thanks. Thanks very Thank much, you. Kim. But now, now we're moving to uh, now we're moving to what I what I imagine will be a very hopeful and inspiring presentation from Julia Felmanas, who is uh, from the PT, the Brazilian Workers Party, and she's going to talk about the huge success of President Lula's world-leading zero hunger plan, which lifted millions of Brazilians out of poverty. And we hope that he will move forward with all these brilliant policies now that he's been re-elected. Julia. Um, hi, everyone. Thank you very much for inviting me here to talk about this, what is a very important subject, which is people being able to eat and not be hungry. And as everybody here, starting with Ian, have mentioned, hunger is a political choice. And when President Lula was first elected, he was elected by saying he was elected and his main saying, his main objective when he came into government was, so long as I am able to make sure that every Brazilian can have three meals a day, I have managed to do what I want to do. I have reached my objectives. So Lula's first and main um, priority was to end hunger in Brazil. And Brazil, when he came into power, had 44 million people who were living on less than one dollar a day. And by the time President um, Dilma Rousseff was forced out of power just before that in 2014, Brazil had managed to leave uh, the hunger map. Um, making sure that uh, the the majority of people in Brazil were eating the three meals a day that um, Lula had envisaged. Um, probably the most famous uh, of of all the policies uh, that Lula brought in um, was the Bolsa Família, the 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 universe, universal benefit given to all the families who were living under a certain amount of money to ensure that they could um, buy food. But I think it's also important to mention the fact that if it wasn't for the policy of consistently um, raising the minimum salary above inflation every single year, Hunger wouldn't have, um, well, Brazil wouldn't have left the hunger map, basically. So I think first and foremost, it's important that people who earn, people who are, who are getting a salary, are getting a salary that is sufficient 
to make sure that people were, are able to feed their families, which unfortunately is not the case um, neither in the UK or, or in Brazil at the moment. But the Bolsa Familia uh, program also ensured that not only people had money in their pockets to buy food, but that also meant that there was money circulating in the economy. So the families that were getting the Bolsa Familia had for the first time uh, money in their hands and the people who were, who were getting a much better minimum salary had money in their hands to go and uh, to the local shop and buy food. So that made sure that the local shops were able to buy food as well to be able to uh, provide uh, to their clients. So therefore, the Brazilian economy started at the lower level, started to move in a way uh, that it hadn't seen probably never in its history. And it also meant that when the crisis of 2008 uh, arrived in Brazil, Brazil uh, had a local internal economy that kept it going because uh, people were able to buy and live uh, and, 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 and move on. And of every uh, um, real or Brazilian real spent on the Bolsa Familia, it put back in the, in the, into the economy 1.78 pounds. So it wasn't a waste of money. It wasn't just giving um, money to the poor. It was a way of making sure the economy was moving uh, by providing people enough money to eat. It also had a number of other different um, benefits. Um, it, it, it had the, the, the ability that, uh, it, to make sure that women were a little bit more free from their husbands or from the male dependency of, of having to be the provider. So women had money in their pockets, which were mainly used for food. So out of the money spent on Bolsa Familia, something like 87% uh, went uh, to feed their children, uh, basically. And 93% of the people who received Bolsa Familia were, were basically uh, women as well. And um, so it made these women uh, far more able to be independent from their husbands and also to decide and to, to be less explored in society. So if you're thinking about women who need to go out to work and they're probably going to be working as uh, maids in somebody else's house or at a very low base um, daily rate of agriculture, these women now had a little bit of a bargaining power to say, um, I, I, I'm not going to work for this. If you want me to work, then you, you need to raise my wages because otherwise I'm not going to get out. So it was like a safety net that Brazil never, ever had before. But beyond the, the, the actual Bolsa Familia, which is um, something that um, we never had in Brazil as, as a benefit, we also have to think about the number of other programs that uh, in, were included into the zero hang, hunger strategy 
of Lula. And I think one of the main ones is something that um, Kim mentioned here is the idea of um, food in schools and food in other social setting, settings, soup kitchens, etc., where the government uh, bought food from local family farmers uh, to then um, supply for school kitchens, soup kitchens, and any other situations that needed any sort of community uh, eating as such. So basically, uh, as well as um, having a system where you put money into people's hands so they can go out and buy food, you were also making sure that the food you were buying were coming from the local family farmers. So they were being supported by selling their food and making sure that the um, economy moved in that way. And I think that was a, a, a very important program um, that was uh, part of the, the, the programs that were then dismantled by first Temer and, and, and then Bolsonaro. And differently from the way that the social services uh, or the social system in the UK was made up, uh, the Brazilian um, social system under Lula was one that um, people were put into a, a, a single register for all the different benefits that they might have. But the idea was that, that the government would look for people who should be receiving benefits. And they're not what actually happens in the UK and probably happens in Brazil right now, which is to make, to, to try and get rid of people, make it as difficult as possible to people to receive support. So the idea and the priority was to make sure that Brazil found the people who were hungry. So therefore they were, went actually looking for these people to make sure that they were included into the systems. And, and and not and not make people go hungry. It did have um, also another couple of links which had to do with health and education. So for the families uh, to be able to receive uh, a benefit, they had to make sure that their children were attending school. So they needed to have a an attendance of over eighty five percent to be able to be following. And that made sure that a new generation was actually going to school. And the second conditionality was one related to health. So mothers had to take their children for vaccination and ensure they followed the, the first stages, I think up to six years of age, that might be wrong on that, and make sure that they received antenatal care and postnatal care after they gave birth. So these were the conditionalities for you to be able to, to be in that system. And that, uh, unfortunately for us, I think it only led to one generation of Brazilians who were born without the threat of going hungry and without the threat of malnutrition. And we know that when children are mal malnourished, they're not able to learn as well as when they're well fed. So it's very important for the future of any country to make sure that children are eating well. 
So unfortunately, although this this was a very a policy that that happened when we had the coup against Mil, um, Dilma Rousseff, and we had her vice president coming in with a neoliberal revolution. Um, against what had been uh, um, done, one of the things that they did is introduce to the Brazilian uh, constitution an amendment which put a ceiling onto the the expenditure of um, social services, which meant that they had that Brazil could no longer spend as much as they were spending on things like all the social policies, especially the ones around Bolsa Familia. Bolsa Familia actually carried on for a bit without increasing the level of inflation, but it carried on. But it was more the the, the side, the subsidiary policies that basically almost disappeared. And then through Temer and through Bolsonaro, it meant that now Brazil has a, a population of 33 million people going hungry in the country again. But Lula being elected, and even before his election, in this moment of transition, uh, his main priority was to make sure that there will be money to carry on with these um, programs that he put into place during his government. So he's been spending his time negotiating with Parliament at the moment to make sure that we now have uh, an inflation, uh, that we have a benefit above inflation uh, and that it's related to the number of children each family has. And he's now negotiating that there is enough money to par um, through Parliament for that. Because unfortunately, Bolsonaro in the past few months, although he's increased the value of the benefits uh, to make sure that he was elected, he set a date of December 23 for that. So therefore, left no money for the next year to go into those policies. So that's being negotiated at the moment. And, and um, we just heard that with the help of the Supreme Court, uh, we're going to have uh, the, the benefits for uh, hunger outside um, the, the ceiling that it was set up during the Tamar government. So, so there is hope. And once again, I want to say that uh, dealing with hunger is a political choice and uh, Lula's making his priority hunger number one again as well now he has a, a, a greater number of, of priority education being one of them but he he wants to make sure that Brazilian people were able to eat like they were during his first government thank you Julia thank you thank you very much and it's always it's always good to hear from someone that's uh, that's actually doing the right thing, isn't it? Thank you very much. Um, I, uh, if you've if you've got any questions, make sure that you're putting them in. I did notice that someone was asking uh, asking for to to for have to for it to be repeated where you get the uh, right to food toolkit. So if we haven't got that in the chat, can someone perhaps put that in? Now we come to our last uh, presentation. This is a joint presentation from. Uh, Hilary Shan from Momentum and Carl Walker, uh, Walker from Worthing Council, and they're going to talk about local campaigning 
on the right to food and in particular drawing on their research into hunger trauma so Hilary and Carl the floor is yours. Thanks Christine um yeah and uh thanks everybody uh all the other speakers and everyone who's joining um I'm Hilary I'm the co-chair of Momentum and we're really proud to be uh co-hosting this seminar tonight um yeah so Carl and I are going to talk about a piece of research that we've been doing um here in Worthing and how we've been campaigning for the right to food locally um and how those of us uh, that are involved in um right to food projects uh, can ensure that we are supporting um, our communities in the most dignified way possible. Um, so I'm going to hand over to Carl uh, to introduce himself and to start. Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, my name's Carl Walker. I'm the Deputy Leader of Worthing Council um, and uh, with Hillary and some local uh, people, uh, we set up a community volunteer run uh, non-referral uh, food bank called the Worthing Food Foundation. Um, and I'm also an academic um, and I work in community mental health um and uh so, so the work that um what i'm going to talk about is is why right to, i'm going to give two reasons that why i think right to food is so important and links up um with with some of the stuff that i've been involved in the first one is um i think most people who are probably tuning in tonight i imagine understand that food banks are not the answer to uh food insecurity and food poverty um they they are they we run a food bank we've done it for two years we support 700 people a week um however it's a it's a fraction of the people who live in food insecurity in our town which is 12,000 people it's just not an effective way of doing it and it's politically problematic because it's in essence it's stepping into where the welfare state should be and that's why a right to food campaign is so fundamentally important um but the second reason i want to talk about is something that's often not recognized around the issue of food and food insecurity and hunger and that is that we're actually not only seeing a, a crisis of uh, hunger but we're also seeing uh, a mental health crisis that's associated with it i did a piece of research um with hillary and a couple of others um based at my day job at university of brighton and we just produced a report um and the reports uh, on hunger trauma in essence we we interviewed a number of people using food banks uh, around the south coast and they talked about their experiences of using food banks and actually quite rarely did they actually speak about hunger that's not to say they weren't experiencing hunger they were and and and, and as this previous speakers have outlined we, we uh, that, that it's a it's a devastating thing to to, to be hungry to, to skip meals to watch your, your your children have to skip meals um it's absolutely devastating but in actual fact people's focused much more on the impact that it had on how they understood themselves and their mental health and their mental well-being and trying to survive it um it's interesting because when you talk to people who use food banks a lot of people um they will talk about mental health and they'll talk about it in terms like depression anxiety some of them talked about suicidal ideation and attempted suicides but um but in actual fact i don't think it's a, a, a as a psychologist speaking as a psychologist i don't think those terms are necessarily very useful ways of understanding the actual distress associated with using a food bank and we use the term hunger trauma because um what we what, what tends to happen is when you focus on individual mental health problems it individualizes and depoliticizes what is a political problem and that's been that's been stated uh, earlier on already um, and so it's really it's really important that we understand this trauma as a very specific kind of trauma and one that is politically mediated, economically mediated and caused by, in essence, 40 years of, of, of economic violence that's that's being uh, uh, impacting more and more people, as Ian said earlier. 
when you talk to people about what hunger trauma looks like, they talk about the inherent shame of having to be hungry, of having to reach out and ask for help, and the way that that shame really colours the way they see themselves and their place in society. They talk about the, the experience of living in constant crisis. I mean, it, it, and, and people were saying every single day is a crisis. Every single day is a scramble for food for them or for their children. There was no let up. The anxiety and the profound worry that they were experiencing was really debilitating. They talked about simply not being able to focus on anything else when they were hungry and living through this anxiety and worry. Identity and status is a big thing. It changed people the way that they they feel about themselves in a very fundamental way. Um, People said they moved away from seeing themselves as an autonomous person who contributes to society, to somebody who is a passive claimant. And after 10, 12 years of austerity and all the discourses around strivers and skivers and and the demonization of of poverty and those who live in poverty, it has an impact on people and how they how they actually see themselves. They talked about guilt. I mean, even despite the fact that many of these people simply didn't have enough food for themselves or their families, they still felt guilty about using a food bank because they always imagined there was somebody else who was worse off. And and one of the one of the most difficult parts of this was the, the guilt that people felt about not being able to be a fit parent, that they felt that they were letting their children down uh, to sit there and to, to listen to their children cry at night because they were hungry um, is, a, is a profoundly debilitating thing to have to go through. Um, and of course, there was a physical element of hunger as well. Um, and, and it's and, 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 and the reason I try and move, I want to move away from terms like depression, and anxiety um, is because this is a trauma. It's a very broad trauma. It's about identity. It's about mental health. It's about your place in society. But it's caused by political decisions and it's caused by economic decisions. And so a trauma is a u- more useful framing. But in terms of the impact of this, and this is really important that my, my kind of t- take home message before I, I leave and, 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 and and hand you over to Hillary, is the fact that, yes, we have a crisis of food poverty in this country and it is growing at an exponential rate, but actually we have an associated crisis of mental health. There's a real mental health crisis happening all around the country, but specifically with regards to the growing number of people who cannot feed their families as a result of this trauma. And as Ian mentioned, you've got 10 million adults and 4 million children currently experiencing this in this situation. The impact that that's having on people's well-being and their mental and psychological well-being is absolutely profound and it's a trauma that lasts through people's uh, you know right the way through their lives you don't leave it when you start getting food again people talk about the long-term effects of this um and that's why for me right to food is absolutely fundamental this is a political problem that can only be organized and addressed with political solutions where campaigns come together uh, I'll, I'll um i'll hand you over to hillary now to to take it from here um, yeah, so the research that we did um, involved 18 food bank users um, from across Ada and Worthing, uh, and they had experienced different um, types of food bank models. Um, and so one of the things around uh, really thinking about the mental health impacts um, of living in food insecurity is how we can actually help that in the short term by our interactions with those seeking food support. Um, so one of the things about the food bank uh, sector is that it, it's entirely unregulated. Um, Um, And so you can get a number of different food bank models. Um, And we heard about those different models in the research. So, for instance, um, there there can be a model of queuing. People queue for food um, and then they, uh, you know, they go in and they're handed um, a particular package of food. Um, There's uh, other methods like that we use, which is a delivery model where we um, at the Worthing Food Foundation always deliver food direct to people's homes. Um, 
And what we saw was that the these interactions are all vital. Every single interaction that you have with somebody that's seeking food support can have a positive or negative impact on their mental well-being. So, for instance, we heard um, a story of um, a woman who had got the sort of courage to f- seek food support, which is a it can be a massive, massive step to even get to that point of seeking support. Um, and she had gone along to a food bank and um, they said, uh, you know, basically choose what you want. So she picked up a packet of burgers and the woman took it off her, took it out of her hands and said, that's not for you. That's for families. And, you know, the thing about these um, these experiences is that, you know, people that are running food banks that are volunteering at food banks, of course, they are well intentioned. They absolutely are. But because there's no centralized um, kind of training or guidance around the mental health impacts in those environments and um, that those little interactions can have a really really negative impact on somebody's sense of status um, and their sort of um, sense of, of well-being and, and their contribution to society. Um, another thing is that um, food banks are often uh, sort of conflated with religious spaces uh, often in churches. Our, our food bank is um, is based in a church um, and we heard from users that there was um, an an element of kind of religious evangelism sometimes that came along with uh, seeking food support um, which obviously has you know um, its own problems for obvious reasons Um, and so uh, what we've been doing at the Worthing Food Foundation we operate um, what we call the food first model and this is based on the housing first model uh, which is essentially that um, if you provide um, somebody with enough food to eat Um, and you remove that trauma from their lives, it gives them the space um, to sort out other issues in their life, essentially. And that's what the housing first model did was that, you you know, you house somebody first um, and then they're able to tackle other um, issues in their lives. Um, We've always operated a delivery model um, and we heard in the research how that made a really big difference to people um, because it um, helped it to feel a little bit more normal. Um, Not that we want to normalise the experience, but for them in that situation, um, having bags, I mean, particularly during COVID, having bags of shopping dropped outside your door um, was not an unusual thing. Um, And so still we heard of kids saying to their parents, you know, oh, it's good that they come here isn't it mum because you know people probably just think we're getting shopping dropped off Um, and so it just really helped to alleviate some of that stigma and embarrassment and and kind of shame uh, element of it um, and so, yeah, so we um, we've been working on this uh, and uh, what we're looking at as well is a, um, a dignity and food support charter, um, which lots of different groups are coming together and organising around um, so that people that are providing food support to people um, can have this kind of charter and this guidance uh, in terms of how to make those interactions um, as dignified as they possibly can be. Um, and then locally as well, we're, we're just uh, working hard on trying to um, reduce the stigma around food support. As Carl said, we know um, we're feeding seven or eight hundred people a week. We know that that's a tiny fraction of the people that are actually struggling to eat in the town. Um, and so also part of the research was um, that we interviewed people, but we also asked them to take photographs of um, something that they felt represented their own experience of um, using a food bank. And we've taken those photographs and we've um, put up an exhibition on Worthing Seafront. We have a lovely old um, shelter that's on the seafront 
Um, and we've combined that with images that have um, quotes from the interviews. And the exhibition is called Used to the Hunger, which was actually taken direct from a quote from somebody that said, um, you just get used to the hunger. Um, so we're, uh, you know, raising funds through the exhibition as well. Um, and locally, we are organising to have a Right to Food um, South event on February the 4th um, here in Worthing as well. So um, please look out for um, follow us both on Twitter and uh, the um, event details for that will be up shortly. And we welcome anybody to come along um, and contribute to that as well. Um, so, yeah, that's it from from us. That's great. Thank you very much, Hilary uh, and Carl. I mean, I think, you know, the, the, issue, the issue about this meeting is that actually this is a right. The right to food is a basic human right. And however, as Hilary said, however well-intentioned people are in food banks, charity is charity. Uh, and philanthropy is philanthropy. And it's about making rich people feel very good about what they're doing, generally speaking. So this is actually, this is a socialist approach to this, which is actually about making sure that the right to food is a, is a basic human right. So thank you very much. And if you want to look at that research, the details of that uh, are available. Now, uh, that, that concludes our speakers. They were all brilliant presentations. So thank you very much, just in case I failed to say thank you very much again at the end. They were really, really interesting. Um, I've got a couple of questions, one specifically for Kim, and one specifically for Ian. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go to Kim first. Um, now this is quite this is a longish question, Kim. What can be done to expand the demand for free school meals to secondary school children as many teenagers are nutritionally vulnerable? For example, low iron levels is common in adolescent girls. We need to ensure a focus on the right to adequate nutrition for adolescent growth and development. I have to say. My impression is when we were talking about free school meals for all, we're talking about free school meals for all. This is not a primary thing. Anyway, over to you, Kim. Well, I think um, a couple of organisations are looking at starting with um, primary school. But, you know, when I've spoken, I've said that I truly believe that universal free school meals should extend to secondary schools, you know, because um, I'm the mother of twins I had teenagers they used to eat me out of house and home you know they have growth spurt so it's really important in terms of a their nutrition and their ability to concentrate in lessons that teenagers have access but I know that we have to start somewhere and so you know I I have been calling for universal free school meals for all children at all ages because you know children don't stop being hungry when they leave primary school and it's really important to recognize that and but I know that you know we need to start in infant schools you know and we need to be start looking at um secondary schools definitely yeah thanks very much Kim I think that's a, I think that's a, an absolutely perfectly legitimate mm. demand and it was when there was a uh, when there was a food foundation event that I know you went to yeah. Kim in uh, in London recently there were lots and lots of secondary school kids there who were they talking were. exactly about the fact that they face the stigma because there isn't universality no. and actually you know universal free school meals in secondary is a is a perfectly reasonable demand so thanks very much uh, and just and just and just to qualify sorry Christine sorry um um, Southwick, who have rolled out universal free school meals for primary 
age children are now looking at um, finding and sourcing the resources to be able to do that for secondary as well you know yeah I think I mean there must be other authorities that are looking at it certainly I know of some others in London too so thanks for the question and thanks very much uh, for the answer Kim so this is a question specifically for Ian the question says I I believe we need to build a mass movement and organise coordinated hunger marches, in particular on Parliament. What do you think of a national right to food union along the lines of the National Union of Unemployed Workers of the 1920s and 30s, which organised the Jarrow hunger marches? So while you're just thinking about that, Ian, there's also someone who's interested to know how they can get Spurs um, involved in Fans for Food Banks or whatever it was that you started in 2015. So if you've got a view about what might be done for Tottenham Hotspur, you can come up with that as well. So over to you. It's just on the Tottenham elements of it, yeah. Just tell them to get in touch if any Tottenham fans want to do. I know they do stuff on the grounds, uh, but they're not. They haven't been involved in uh, fan support and food banks direct. So yeah, always welcome. Uh, just to touch on the universal free school meal elements as well. That's a that's a that's a that's a fundamental right within the right to food uh, campaign. It's from when you go into school. Obviously, you'd already get an element of free school meals. So when you leave school, it shouldn't be any different. And I've made that point to all the NGOs who were speaking. We've got to aim for the stars. It's you know, I said that to Andy Dimbleby as well. He should have done that in the national food strategy and he tried to temper it down and then implement anything in the end. We've got to have exactly like you outlined in Finland. That's what we should be demanding as a society. Uh, just on the question, it's a good question. Uh, and I think what we're looking at, as I touched on before, was building the network. Uh, both in, in in Westminster and also within communities to fan support and food banks, the Rights of Food Network. And, you know, slowly but surely we're getting there. Hillary and Kyle are a testament to that as well. And wording, it's people coming together who've seen the campaign and doing stuff within their own communities. I do like the idea of uh, a national, uh, a national, I'll, I'll do it, you know, organisation, but unfortunately that always takes resource, money and, I'm also always wary of a top-down approach where it's not grassroots, then it suddenly becomes uh, an organisation which sometimes doesn't listen to its membership. So I think what we're starting to do with the Rights of Food, Transport and Food Bank's National Network, is is grow that organically. And I think we're getting there as well. And hopefully we'll be looking to have hunger marches within uh, towns and cities uh, at a coordinated date, utilising the football network, we've got utilised the Save Union network we've built up and utilised the community networks we've built up. And the only way we'll get the systemic change that we need, it won't come from Parliament. It'll come from outside Parliament and people creating that much of a noise and that much of the demand of a systemic change. It's the only way we'll achieve this. We knew that when we set up Fans of and Food Banks in 2015, this... You know, what we're doing, I think it was touched on before by Carl's stick and plaster. You know, we fed, I think, 79,000 people this year in Liverpool alone. It's total stick and plaster. And we need a systemic change. The only way we get that is the right to food. Uh, and the only way we get that is creating a noise, such a noise, where politicians of any you have got to listen to it. And we've got to demand that it's in every manifesto. And I think that's got to be the aim. I think the focal point of the campaign in the next two years, we're going to have a general election. Well, it's got to be in the manifesto of every political party. And I think that's got to be what we've got to try and do and make sure it's implemented. 
Thanks very much, Ian. That's great. Okay, I've got a I've got a question coming up here for Julia. So, uh, <clears throat> so the uh, the question says solidarity to you, Julia, uh, from the Right to Food London, and they what they want to know is were the local food councils led by NGOs or local state led, or were they genuinely grassroots? I think the food councils were 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 they local? I, to be honest, I I I am not an expert, so I don't know. But there was a mixture of of people in the towns, and uh, they were they were turned into municipal things, uh, groups, and the the municipalities were then dealing with the councils and making those decisions. And decisions mm -hmm. were done also through. Uh, the various social uh, services centers that were set up related to to the um, to the food. Uh, sorry, to the to the Bosa Familia. But I I don't I I, I can't answer this question. I don't know enough to be okay. able to tell you this. To be uh, truly honest. Okay. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, Julia. We're going to move to. Uh, Hilary and Carl, and we've got a question for you two, which is, have you looked at what the long-term cost of food poverty is in terms of its impact on education, employment, um, and long-term health and mental conditions? I mean, I think you went through some of that when you were making your presentation, but if you've got any more remarks you want to, you want to, remain, you want to uh, make on that, that would be great. Yeah, I, I suppose. Um, yeah, we did, but um, I think I think that, that I mean, I, I, there is research out there, undoubtedly, which talks about long term impacts. I mean, uh, the short term impacts, uh, particularly on children, it, it appears to be the case from the research that I've seen is that the the the, the it, it's children who are living in food poverty who are most affected long term, not just in terms of a, uh, of education and educational experience, but in terms of their growth, their overall physical and mental health. So there's definitely research out there which shows that this is the case. That the research out there on the longer term impacts uh, in terms of physical health on adults is that it's less robust there's less research out there however there's certainly research out there on the longer term mental health impacts of uh, of adults who are experiencing this kind of this kind of hunger trauma and there's um and there's no doubt it is really significant i mean we've, we've got one person who actually um uh, uh, who, who's a benefactor um of of our organization actually a couple of people who who've, who've lived this and 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 who are testament to the impact that it has throughout the lifetime and so it's it is such a debilitating thing um but yeah to, to, so to summarize there, there is research out there particularly around children the impacts of children and young people um but there's also spaces for more research because i think the, the situation we are in now is becoming quite unprecedented and so i think a continued research needs to happen as to uh, look at the physical and, and and mental health impact because it is getting so profound and so debilitating for people um, and I think just to briefly just um, pick up on that as well, that um, in terms of the sort of wider impacts on society, you know, to pick up on something Julia was talking about, about the impacts on women, uh, and also obviously you need to consider sort of intersectionality as well. Um, but, you know, the majority of people that took part in the research were women, uh, the majority of food bank users in this country are women, um, and even in um, uh, households where there are male and female parent, it's usually the women that will seek food support. Um, and, you know, uh, women, as we know, are often in insecure work you know um, juggling caring responsibilities um, and so uh, 
the more that they are having to struggle to um, just feed their children, feed their families, um, the less they can take part in political spaces um, and be, you know, represent represent their communities, etc. So there, there's a much wider impact on um, on society and uh, that kind of structural oppression as well. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. I'm gonna. I've got. I've got one more question to um, Kim and uh, Kim. If you want to take this question and then use the opportunity to do any kind of final uh, wrap up remarks that you want to make, and then we'll go to Ian for another question and do his wrap up remarks. So, um, so the question is really about the um, People's Assembly Wales led a grassroots campaign to roll out free school meals for primary kids in Wales. Mm-hmm which you did reference in your remarks. Mm-hmm. And uh, and of course, someone else has said that all children get free school meals in Sweden. Mm-hmm. Uh, generally speaking, the model in Scandinavia is much better. So this questioner just wants to know whether we're making international links. And I can just say from my point of view, I know that the NEU makes international links on these issues all the time. So I'm sure, Kim, that, that international links are being made in this campaign too. International links are being made, yes, and I'm a member of the Education Select Committee and will be attending a delegation in April, and I intend to um, raise these issues as well. But the fact that both Wales and Scotland has been able to roll out universal free school meals, you know, says to me that it can be done, you know, and as, you know, a number of us on this um, rally tonight have already stated that um, hunger and poverty is a political decision. So if this government wanted to, they could very easily, you know, find the money to do so. Because as we all know on this call, you know, that so-called magic money tree has been shook a number of times for a number of um, issues, you know, whether it be PPE or to give, you know, um, um, Baroness Moan some money to set up some, um, you know, um, companies. So it is a political choice. And, you know, it has been proven that it can be undertaken and using examples from other countries, because I think, as I said in my speak, you know, we do have examples from other countries and we need to be utilising them, A, Mm -hmm. to put pressure on the government, but also to be challenging, you know, off from bench, because at the end of the day, you know, it's looking like that we might be in Parliament uh, in two years' time. And so to having these discussions now to ensure that it's embedded in our manifesto is a must, you know, and there is um, a, a groundswell of movement taking place in terms of, um, you know, food insecurity, but also um, the the rollout of um, universal free school meals, you know, whether it be... Um, um, Tom Kerridge and um, Jamie, you know, they're both pushing for it. You know, Henry Dimbleby, as Ian's just said, you know, we need to be utilising, you know, um, this movement at the moment in terms of um, applying pressure. And, you know, I hand delivered a, a letter with some young people who access free school meals to Parliament to 10 Downing Street on um, last Monday. 
So it is about all of us coming together, you know, and having this coordinated approach to make change happen because there is a groundswell of support, but only by being united and working together can change come along and um, we can make some significant change and make sure that no child goes hungry. Thanks, Christine. Thank you very much, Kim. Okay, so last question to Ian and any kind of wrap up remarks, Ian, that you want to make. This question says, one recent report said free school meals could pay for themselves. I don't, I, I don't, I'm not familiar with this report, but I hope you are. Um, is there anything you can say about that? I mean, it seems to me that in terms of, in terms of people's health and education, it's pretty obvious that we would have a healthier population if kids were eating at school and not being hungry. But anyway, over to you. Uh, thanks, Chris. Yeah, there's a there's a report by uh, PCW saying that it's it's cost negative. It far outweighs the cost. Uh, the the benefits far outweigh the the cost. And you think about obviously the investments in our children's futures, what that brings to the country, taking the pressure off the NHS, uh, massive issue, because we know with children uh, facing poverty at such a young age, then the rest of the life is an uphill battle health wise. So there's huge cost implications in doing what the government are doing now with the political choices uh, that, they, that they're making. So what an opportunity to absolutely transform the country. And that's why universal free school meals is such an important element of the rights of food uh, movements. And that's what we should be demanding. We shouldn't be de- we sh- we're not asking for anything other than the ability for everybody in this child in this country to be able to eat and then live a life and bring that to the table regarding the advancements of our class in this country. Julia touched on it before. You know, what they're doing in Brazil is exactly what we should be doing. That's the type of mindset we should be demanding. We should be demanding systemic change. When we've got 40 million people, 4 million kids going hungry, you know, the system is completely and utterly broken. So we need to sit down. We need to look at what options we've got. We firmly believe, we have done for the last eight years, that the right to food key a fundamentally key and we wire in society. So everybody has an opportunity and it's not just the elite and the very rich few that can actually progress in society and the rest of us uh, are cast aside. It's just so unfair, you know, on the, the generations that are coming through now that they won't get the same opportunity because they're hungry. And, you know, it's absolutely vital for a functioning society that we solve this issue. And that's why I'm so passionate about the right to food. That's why it's fundamentally since 2019, since I got in Parliament, I've been looking at building that movement. So we've got that movement there now. And I think, as Kim said, it's about people coming together. It's about demanding change. And it's about looking at a system which, as I said, is fair and equal. equal. That's the type of society I'm sure we all want to live in. That's the type of society we should be demanding. And as I said, I think... Politically, we've got to be demanding to all parties to include the right to food within the manifesto with all the elements of outline and let's rewire society because at the moment it's completely broken and the next four months are going to be possibly the most brutal we've ever seen in 100 years and that's the sort of thing that we're facing. So we need radical solutions, not thinking around the edges and I firmly believe that a right to food should be a massive part of that rewire in a society. Ian, thank you very much. That's a, a brilliant note on which to on which to finish. So thank you very much to uh, to all of our speakers. They were all brilliant presentations. Thank you very much for all of you who have joined. 
make maybe you could make sure that some of your friends and comrades listen to this on a podcast if they didn't get on this evening and look out for more uh more seminars from the socialist campaign group in the new year uh that's it for this evening thank you very much solidarity oh no before i go <coughs> make sure that uh, if you've got any chance to get to a picket line of any of our really wonderful trade unions who are taking action in the next week please do i'm sure that there was some stuff in the uh, in the chat about where they will all be we really need to stand together in the trade union movement to make sure that we really are winning for everyone thank oh and you can volunteer you can download strike map fabulous thank you very much okay so now that is the end of the meeting thank you very much for joining everyone good night comrades solidarity <laughs>